Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is Global Tales. Welcome, 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 everybody around the world. Um, This is a co-sponsored event between Guide Dog Users, Inc. and International Relations. And so... Um, on behalf of both the affiliate and the committee, we would like to welcome you all. Definitely, it is such an honor to be uh, to have this event and to have um, the the panel that we do have and that we've established. Um, basically, a very illustrious panel, and so we are going to go ahead and jump right in. And what I will do is um, I will ask that the panelists introduce themselves, say a little, give us a little snippet about who you are um, and the who you're representing. And also we'll go ahead and let you um, kind of take a stab at the first question is, which is what really facilitated this entire process? So the opening code, it is 51374. 51374. That is the opening code. And make sure you guys uh, stay with us for the entirety of the panel because at the end, we will be providing the closing code as well. Okay, so (laughs) without further ado, um, we are going to go ahead and get started. And as I stated previously, what I'd like to have happen is for the panelists to introduce themselves and just a little bit speak to what was it that actually facilitated the this whole process. Um, can we start with Diane? I'm Diane Bergeron. I'm president of CNIB Guide Dogs. We are based in Carleton Place, Ontario. We established our guide dog program in uh, 2017 and um, but CNIB itself has been around since since about uh, 19, um, 1918. So we've been around for a long time as an organization, um, which helped us when we started our guide dog program. Um, we, we started with the um, global connecting with other members um, in the last, well, we've been doing it for a while and just connecting and gaining experience and knowledge. Um, from other um, programs around the world. But in the last year, because of COVID and the border closures, we've really partnered with other organizations to help with resolving some of the issues of getting animals and people across borders and from other countries. I'm just going to maybe leave it there and let the next panelists go and then because I'm sure we'll get into more details as we move forward, I expect. Is that that okay, Des? Yes, ma'am. Perfectly good. Um, next, we will go with Lucas. Clearly. Lucas, your um, your connection is not very good. Um, okay, can we go on to David and and perhaps we'll come back to you, uh, Lucas, when when David's done. Sounds good by me. This is David. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, you're fine. Perfect. So my name's David Lachlan. I'm the director of programs. Uh, Leader Dogs for the Blind. Uh, my background 
is I've been in the guide dog industry for 21 years. I started at Guide Dogs in the UK, um, which was an organization that was founded in 1931 um, as a guide dog mobility instructor. I wasn't there in 1931, but I was a guide dog mobility instructor. Um, and then I um, transitioned in 2013-ish to Irish Guide Dogs, which is a separate uh, organization that was founded in 1976 and in 2014 I um, uh, came to Leader Dogs for the Blind in uh, Michigan here um, so uh, uh, that's kind of a little bit of my history so um, kind of worked in organizations across Europe and, and the US uh, and also partnered with um, uh, various organizations in terms of training apprentices and uh, all that good stuff so that's kind of a a short snapshot of my background. Okay, thank you. Um, all right, Lucas, let's try you again. Maybe your um, connection is a bit better this time. So um, what we'll go ahead and do is we will continue on and um, hopefully Lucas will be able to um, join us. Next question, what type of advocacy was required in order to set up the exchanges? Who would like to take that? It's, it's Diane. I'm happy to, um, to talk about it. Um, okay. So, so CNIB Guide Dogs, because we're a new school, um, we use a breeder in Australia to get our puppies. Uh, we were, we've been using career dogs to ensure that our, the genetics of the dogs that we get are meeting the standards and the qualifications and qualities and temperament that we need. And so, um, of course, the pandemic hit uh, last year, and so suddenly we couldn't get our puppies transported from Australia to Canada. And so we went an entire year without having an injection of puppies into our program. Um, given that we're a small school, of course, you can imagine that that really depleted our, our supply. At the same time, with the border closure, um, many Canadian students do go to the United States to get their dogs. Um, and so a lot of, uh, a lot of folks from Canada uh, started applying to Canadian programs, including CNIB Guide Dogs, um, as looking for, for getting their dogs here in, in the country. So our supply went down, our demand went up, and because we're still a very small school, you know, we had this, um, we, we had this fantastic strategic plan that was slowly in, you know, developing over years and increasing and, and, um, and putting more staff and more um, dogs and so on into the program. And we suddenly found that we had a 375% increase in demand into our program. So, um, and of course you get a puppy, it's not going to help anybody for two years. So that wasn't going to help. So what we did um, was we started contacting um folks that we knew, uh, organizations, um, guide dog programs in the United States, asking for if they had any dogs that due to the, the pandemic closures, that maybe they weren't going to be able to utilize because they had to reduce their class sizes and so on, and requesting to have dogs that were already um, 12 to 18 months old, that we could get from them to bring over the border because we couldn't get people over the border, but we could get dogs over the border. And so we we're asking um, to provide us with with dogs that we could then train for for our program. 
And so really that's what, how that whole thing started from our side was contacting um, leader dogs, contacting a whole bunch, contact a whole bunch of schools and um, leader dogs. Um, uh, thank you so much, David. I, I stepped up and um, to date, I'm trying to remember how many dogs you provided us to date, David. I think we're like at 10 or 11 or something like yeah. that. Yeah. I think uh, um, 12 in total. Yeah. 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 It's been, it's been amazing. And we've had the opportunity to, uh, to have the dogs come in and, and, and do training in our program. And um, also guide dog foundation has also provided us with a couple of dogs. So we've had an opportunity to continue um, training adult dogs in, in the program. And hopefully we'll be able to get those dogs partnered up Um and I think the other thing I just I just wanted to to say is that the other issue we had, of course, as I said, is the puppies, and um, we couldn't get our dogs from Brisbane to Canada, but we were able to get puppies from Brisbane to Melbourne. And so CNIB and Vision Australia have had a relationship for many many years. So we contacted CNI in in Australia. And we sent one of our puppy raisers over there who had an Australian passport. So she went and stayed in Melbourne and created um, a, a puppy, um, puppy raising, or they call them puppy care um, partnership. And so we've had um, 13 dogs, 13 puppies raised in Melbourne, Australia with their puppy raisers. And we are just now, in fact, as of yesterday, we got our first uh, few dogs coming back. We're starting to bring them back now. And so I believe that's the first time in, I, I don't know, some people who have been around a while might be able to correct me, but I think it's the first time in history that we've had um, a puppy raising, a puppy, puppies being raised in one country and then being transferred over to another uh, school, like on the other side of the world. So that, so that was what, it was just a lot of networking and communications and contact. Thank you, Diane. Um, how about for you, David? Well, we, um, I, I have to say that's very impressive, Diane. I, I didn't realize the, the level of uh, detail and commitment that had gone in between your organization and, and the one in Australia. I think it's going to be really interesting just on, a, um, on the dog side of how those dogs are going to transition into the program. Um, that's quite exciting. Um, and also, I, Diane, thank you to your team because they've been uh, phenomenal at giving updates on the dogs as they've progressed through training or whatever's happened. So um, we also appreciate that as a part of the collaboration. Um, you know, it just made sense for Lita Dog because especially through the pandemic, um, of course, there comes a time when we kind of, um, we'd bred dogs with an idea of how many clients we were going to train prior to, of course, the pandemic, because you plan these things about two years out and what our sort of average is going to be. And, um, of course, we were sadly not, as, not able to train as many clients, so it kind of left us with a surplus of dogs, so it made sense for us to look at alternatives for those dogs because, of course, we bred them for service work, um, whether that's guide dog or, or any sort of service dog type work. And um, yeah, it just made sense that we collaborated with folks rather than career changing because, you know, our puppy raisers have, have put their 
time into these dogs so that they are going to be successful service dogs and hopefully guide dogs. So um, it all sort of worked out well from that perspective. Um, in terms of leader dog's history or even my history when it comes to a lot of the collaboration around the world, you know, there's a lot of guide dog schools that will collaborate on their breeding programs um, for multiple reasons. Um, I can think of examples where perhaps there's been a long line of perhaps skin issues with a particular breed. So it makes sense to see if there's a, a completely different uh, line of, say, golden retrievers that we can bring into the um, breeding pool so that we can start actually breeding out any sort of health or temperament type issues. Um, so that's been going on for a long time um, from a, a kind of networking um, situation across the International Guide Dog Federation. So um, I'm not sure. I mean, feel free to ask any questions if you've got any. Uh, this is Lucas. I don't know if if I'm I'm live now or not, but I've I've managed to get to a hardwired computer, so maybe I'm a little better than I was. We can hear you, Lucas. Oh, good. There we go. You sound great, Lucas. Thank you, Lucas. I'm very glad that finally you're you're sounding crystal clear. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, so, just basically, if you can just give us a brief snippet snippet of um, your bio, who you are. Um, who you're representing, and then sort of what facilitated what precipitated the whole need for the exchanges, um, and what that entailed for CNI. Well, the uh, I've been uh, an instructor for uh, about 41 years, an apprentice for two years before that, uh, and. Uh, I've been involved with the international guy for, for the seeing eye for my entire career. Uh, I'm also an O&M specialist, um, but I've been involved with the International Guide Dog Federation for uh, a good number of years in, in a lot of different capacities. I, I, am, uh, I was an assessor, which uh, as, as you may know, to become a member of the International Guide Dog Federation as, as a full member, you have to go through uh, an assessment process and that means somebody comes out and, and takes a look to see that you meet the standards of the International Guide Dog Federation. Uh, and so I was one of those folks. I was an assessor. And now I'm active uh, in the development committee of the International Guide Dog Federation, which means uh, we, we try to help schools get started in places where uh, there's a desire for, to, to work with guide dogs, but there are no working programs. Right now I'm responsible, um, such as it is, or I represent the IGDF uh, in Latin America, uh, and uh, that's a, a growth area in the guide dog field. Schools are starting, at, uh, and uh, there's several in Brazil, Uruguay, uh, Argentina, Mexico. Uh, so there's, there's a lot going on uh, in Latin America right now in terms of the expansion of the guide dog field. Getting at what uh, I, I heard David talking about just a moment ago, um, and uh, good, to, good to see you, David and, and uh, Diane. Wonderful to be here with you both. Um, the, um, one of the issues with small schools starting out is that they, they don't have uh, a broad range of breeding stock. And so you quickly run into problems with, with, uh, with breeding if your, your lines are too close. So one of the things that the International Guide Dog Federation has been uh, very elemental in is, is, is in creating 
uh, breeding networks, particularly uh, in Asia and Europe, uh, and working to do the same in other areas, but also within the United States, uh, to some extent, is exchanges of breeding stock so that you end up with broader genetic diversity. Uh, and as a result of that type of thing, I can say that across the board, uh, dogs that are bred as guide dogs uh, within the International Guide Dog Federation guidelines are healthier uh, and just nicer, better, more solid dogs than, than ever before as a generalization. Uh, it's a really strong element of the International Guide Dog Federation program. Thank you for elaborating on that. Next question, what sort of advocacy had to take place before um, you were able to establish the guide dog schools? Um, Lucas, actually, since you were on a roll, let's let you continue on with that. Of course, seeing eyes history is such that there, there was a tremendous amount of advocacy in the very beginning of the history of the program and the history of ever since then of continued advocacy for uh, access for, for guide dog users all over the place. We have a, um, a, a legal representative on our staff who specializes in, in access questions as well as advocacy at the state and governmental uh, federal levels. Uh, but uh, it's interesting to watch what's happening in Latin America because there it's, you know, there is very much uh, <clears throat> at the beginning stages of advocacy in some places and it's, it's quite, a, quite a struggle. Um, so without it, we're, we're really in trouble. In North America, we're not, not in terrible shape in this regard, but with the ADA, although there are constant challenges and constant problems, we wouldn't have somebody on our staff to deal with it, but the fundamental right has long been established. Uh, the, the challenges of, of uh, uh, what's going on now with the airlines, which is a, a response, which is problematic, but a, a response to the the, uh, the generalized service dog uh, question, companion dog issues, uh, and emotional support dog issues are representative of the current challenges that we're dealing with now, for sure. Uh, Diane? In regards to the advocacy, when, when we started our program in 2017, um, of course, as I said before, CNIB has been around for over 100 years, and and so we really had been talking about, you know, did we need a school, another school in Canada? Did we not? How could we assist? What's the benefits? And so, um, you know, there was there was a lot of discussion within the organization and at the board level um, about should we or shouldn't we? And we kind of dawdled on it because, you know, there are some very good um, uh, IGDF accredited schools in Canada. And so, the, you know, there was a lot of back and forth about it. And then... We, um, we did a, an extensive um, consultation of our stakeholders, our, our clients, our donors, our board members, the government officials that we've worked with and so on, and to talk about, you know, where are we going to go for the next little bit? And one of the things that came up in this was that uh, people really wanted to see uh, CNIB begin a guide dog program. And um, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to say getting into the dog business because I, I, I've often I go after people all the time and say, we're not in the dog business, we're in the people business. Um, you know, our, our goal is to provide independence and freedom to people who are blind or partially sighted. Um, as a guide dog handler myself, I, I've got a lot of experience in that area. Um, but I think that, you know, getting into the world of training dogs for that and 
So we decided to um, to go ahead, given it, you know, it was a directive um, brought forward through this consultation. Um, and so that there wasn't really anything uh, advocacy to do from in regard in regards to getting it started. Um, what I will say, though, is as a an organization, CNIB has been working on advocacy efforts uh, for uh, for and with um, guide dog handlers for decades, and so we continue to do that. It's one of our core values is uh, breaking down barriers and and creating opportunities and an understanding of the the um, rights and um, obligations of business, the rights of individuals and the, the obligations under bi the businesses and so on for access. So we continue to do advocacy. We, we actually, um, CNIB promotes works with Guide Dog Users of Canada and we do, um, September is Guide Dog Access Awareness Month um, in Canada uh, for CNIB. We, we go out and promote it and take a whole month to just talk publicly and educate about uh, access rights. So from a, from a handler perspective, we definitely do a lot of advocacy. Okay. Um, David. Yeah. So um, I think what I can add is actually thinking about from leader dogs perspective, we're just coming into our next strategic planning phase and actually which like Lucas and Diane have talked about, we're really looking at what advocacy looks like for our organization. So um, we're right at that point now to kind of start working with our current clients and potential clients for the future um, for what the advocacy needs might be. Um, I think it's interesting, kind of almost to Lucas's point, I'm thinking, you know, some of this is we're talking about the international side of this and certainly from a Latin America standpoint, the access rights that uh, I know our clients have there um, is certainly a challenge. Um, and it, it, it is interesting when thinking about even back in the UK, how uh, well that is generally put together, the advocacy piece from the organization there, various other organizations actually, as it pertains to people who are blind or visually impaired is actually very well done. But I think also the funding is there and also the geography is much smaller. So it's uh, a little easier to do compared to a, a country like the United States where it's much, much bigger. So um, excited to kind of see where we can take this for the future. Um, definitely the challenges I've seen over the years in different cultures is kind of the attitudes towards uh, dogs and service dogs and guide dogs in uh, just in the general culture and how that impacts as well, um, how guide dog handlers are perceived. So um, there's certainly a lot more work to do. I think organizations have made some good strides, but it's, it's clear to me that uh, we've got a lot of work ahead of us. And a follow-up uh, question would be for, for the, since there is a, a great deal of, you know, every country, every culture seems to have its views on, um, dogs in general and guide dogs in particular, um, could you speak a little bit more to uh, which cultures um, were the most averse to, to introducing um, guide dogs and which ones were the more uh, cooperative and embracing? This is David. I'll, I'll take a, I'll kind of take a stab at that first. It's so difficult. Okay. I don't know as I could say 
you know, this specific culture. Um, um, oh, gosh, I'm trying to think how best to answer this one. Um, I just, I do not have enough experience of living in so many places around the world. Um, but I think the best kind of answer I could give you, it's kind of what well, my observation has been, what is the, the general attitude towards dogs in, 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 yeah, what's the, what's the attitude towards dogs in general? And that seems to, and again, this is my observation, then translate to guide dog, guide dog handles as well. And I think it's because depending on what the culture around dogs and how, um, so for example, um, cultures who perhaps where dogs are living in the home, they're very much a part of the family network. They're very much a family pet. I, my observation is typically when it comes to guide dog handlers, they're more sort of accepting and those that perhaps the dog is more of a sort of outdoor working type, isn't so much of a family pet, um, perhaps doesn't have um, as much of acceptance when it comes to guide dogs. So it's, it's very much a generalization, um, but that would be my observation. Okay. Um this is Diane. I can, as a handler, I can, I can just, I, I travel a lot um, internationally with my dog. Um, and, in you know, again, I don't think it, I don't think I can comment specifically on culture, but what I can say is that there are certain um, countries that are easier to get into with your dog than others, um, you know, and it, it doesn't necessarily mean the culture. So for example, the United Kingdom, to get in there, you really have to jump through some pretty um, massive hoops to get in. It's getting better. You no longer have to do a, a rabies tighter, but it is, it's because it's an island. So, you know, there's requirements. Once you're in, um, then it's very accepting. Whereas I went to Greece a couple of years ago, I had all my paperwork ready, had a Euro passport for the dog, had all the tapeworm treatments, got to the, the, the customs. They saw the dog and, and said, go, and just didn't, have any interest in looking at the paperwork that I sent. They were just quite happy to let me in the country. I didn't even register. They didn't even stamp my passport. So it was like, you have a dog. We're happy to have you. And, um, and funny enough in the hotel that we, I was staying at, I was the only person at the meeting with the guide dog. And uh, one, all the staff members kept coming over to see the dog. And one of them was FaceTiming his family. And they asked if, if, if he could FaceTime the, the dog with his family Apparently, they didn't want me in the FaceTime. They didn't care if I was there, but they really wanted the dog to FaceTime wow. with their kids. Um, and I thought, like, surely to God, you guys have dogs here, right? Like, so, um, but really welcoming, you know, great. And, and I was concerned about it because I wasn't sure what the, you know, what all of the um, intricacies of the, you know, the area was. And it was completely, it was amazing. Um the one thing that, that I will say is that it, it also depends, it seems like, in the type of place that you're going. So, for example, in Canada, you know, you think all, all the laws are in place. We, we have everything out there. There's information everywhere. Um, but if you're in a bigger city where there's a lot of people that are, uh, you know, that have guide dogs or more, you know, a more um, awareness and people see it more on a regular basis, things seem to be fine. But when you go off into, I don't know, like Fort McMurray, which is in the middle of nowhere, um, Alberta, um, and they don't have any maybe guide dogs or they might have one or two. 
it becomes an anomaly. So they tend to be a little less aware of the, you know, of the laws and, and not sure what to do. So I think it's not just a, a culture in regards to maybe ethnic or country, but I think it's, it's more of a, a piece around um, also around how many, how much exposure you would have to that, uh, that in your area. Yeah, I, I think this is Lucas. I, I completely agree with Diane. There's a lot, lot to that, but there, and then there's also a lot culturally. It's interesting. I just interviewed a, an applicant, a wonderful man who travels internationally a lot, but he does a lot of humanitarian type work. And one of the things that he requested was that he not get a black dog uh, just because in the, many of the cultures he goes to uh, in Africa and sometimes Asia, uh, black dogs are seen as bad luck. Um, so, you know, that's something obviously that we can accommodate. Uh, and that's a serious concern. Um, one of the fascinating things about being in the, involved with the International Guide Dog Federation is exactly these types of cultural issues. Uh, I've had the good fortune to visit several Asian countries, uh, notably uh, Korea and Japan. And um, the Korean guide dog school, culturally, uh, that there's a lot of problem with problems with dogs in public, and they've had to do a tremendous amount of advocacy and been very, very successful at it. Japan also, we had an International Guide Dog Federation meeting in Japan, uh, and uh, in Japan, the, the houses are, are very, and apartments are very, very small by Western standards. Um, and dogs relieving on the street is, is really considered uh, an ugly thing to see. So the dogs are conditioned to empty indoors. They wear relieving belts uh, and, and empty that way. They do it on command very well, which is really handy on really long flights because you can take your dog into the, into the bathroom on a plane and get the dog to relieve there. It's quite something to see. I actually watched, and this was not a guide dog user, but I was in a park in Tokyo and a woman with a, a tiny little dog, a chihuahua or something like that, uh, peed and it didn't go on the grass. It went, happened to go on the sidewalk and the woman pulled out some paper towels and soaked it up. So <clears throat> this, you know, the, the level of reaction to dogs there is, is and, and the necessity of those dogs to be clean is quite something. In addition, dogs in Japan wear clothes. Um, because you know the the shedding is is a huge issue there uh, from a cleanliness perspective. So the dogs have a have a sort of suit or pajamas that they put on. They're completely covered. Their feet are exposed, uh, and their tail pops out the end. There was one dog I saw which had a really cool set of overalls on in, with jean overalls. It looked very very comfortable. Uh, and the dogs wear wear those clothes whenever they're out in public. Uh, their feet are exposed so they can sweat comfortably. Their head is exposed so they can pant so they can, they can breathe. They are comfortable, but uh, the hair is all contained within this um, washable sort of pajama that, that the dog wears. So yeah, there are huge cultural issues. Uh, and of course, the, the other piece of the cultural issue that comes up often is um, Islamic, in Islamic countries and with Islamic people. Uh, and this seems to be, to some extent, related to the religion itself, but to a greater extent uh, re related to the individual culture that underlies the Islamic religion um, and people. Some, some cultures are quite accepting of dogs. 
others not so much. And of course, we know that quite a bit in the United States from access to shops or, or public transportation, uh, publicly available private transportation where there's, there's reaction to, to dogs. And that's often cultural, um, sometimes based in an understanding of the Islamic uh, taboos against dogs, which actually are quite forgiving. And again, it's mostly culture um, rather than religion, in my opinion. It's, it's Diane. I just wanted to say, Lucas, I actually have a golden retriever for the, the same reason that you mentioned. I requested, um, I, I said I would take any breed of dog, but I, I didn't want a black dog for the reason that you had mentioned around the cultural issues with all the traveling that I do. And and everybody at work just teased me and said it was because I wanted a dog that would match my hair. <laughs> my next question is, how about the, the different types of training? What additional, when it came to establishing um, the new schools, was there any kind of additional training that had to be done? Um, and also just even in terms of like, um, was there a language barrier? Um, you know, if, if I wanted a dog and I spoke Portuguese, would, would that be a problem? Not if you had a Portuguese water dog. Oh. <laughs> I, was I, I agree with you, so, uh, Lucas. I, I think they speak Portuguese. I think we're good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I didn't quite catch it at all, but I, I think I kind of got the general gist. So. In terms of training methods, um, gosh, I mean, I think I think the the whole industry has really um, started to change from the the traditional kind of the way I was originally trained, the trial and error, more to the positive reinforcement, um, introducing more sort of food reinforcement, um, use of toys, those types of things. So, I think from that perspective, I think that translates internationally from everything I've seen. It really more so comes down to the environment um, and how those dogs are to be trained with the guide work concepts and how that translates to the environments they're going to be in, um, which is, uh, I think sometimes we overcomplicate it and the dogs uncomplicate it um, as, as they read the environment. So, um, yeah, I really do think it, it, it's more so about specific environment um, I know, I remember Lucas, I think it was back in 2015, you poked fun at me about do we train the dogs on the other side because of, we train in the UK because cars try, drive on the other side, of which I pointed out at the time. No, we still train dogs on the left. Um, makes no difference which side the traffic <laughs> is coming from. Because that was going to be my next question. So, yes, please, please continue. <laughs> uh, that was going to be next. No, makes no difference. That really is about orientation and reading which way traffic is coming from, whether it's far or, or near from you. So um, I think when it comes to really vehicles on one side of the road or the other, the only real difference I see is really about kind of sidewalkless travel or, or country travel, depending on what each guide dog school calls it. Um, in the US, typically, we're, we're walking on the left-hand side of the road if there isn't a sidewalk, which, of course, here um, will mean that uh, the vehicle is coming more towards or on the person's side rather than the dog. Somewhere like the UK, where, where traffic drives on the left-hand side. Am I right? Yep. 
on the left-hand side of the road, um, we would actually travel down the right-hand side, the right verge. So the person is closer to the verge and the dog is closer to the road. Um, and there's pros and cons to both, of course. Um, uh, being able to put your foot out and check the, the verge is there versus the concrete uh, can be definitely a benefit um, in that scenario. But um, gosh, uh, I, I will stop there and let somebody else jump in, I think. It's, it's Diane. I have an Diane? interesting one. Yes. So, so uh, obviously we train dogs only in Canada because we're so small. But, but here's a fun thing that happened in, in our partnership um, with, with leader dogs. And um, David, I don't even know if you heard this particular story. So, um, you know, we use very, uh, we use the same type of training techniques and so on and so forth. Dogs on the left, uh, traffic's the same. We, we're in, even in the same time zone. So it didn't seem like, like this should have been an absolutely easy transition uh, when we got, when we got these dogs. And so they came in uh, we got them into our kennel uh, facility, or what we call our canine campus. And um, uh, six o'clock in the morning comes along, and I'm getting a frantic call from someone in our in our kennel, one of our our kennel attendants, that well, the kennel supervisor with the kennel attendants, um, calling to ask me uh, how to because I used to have leader dogs uh, before I, I started with CNIB. And they called and said, what do you say to your dog to make it go busy? Because they were telling the dogs go busy and the dogs were staring at them like they had three heads. And they were all in a state of panic because they couldn't figure out how to make these dogs. And it suddenly occurred to me that although we use very similar training techniques and so on, we use different words. So I had, as a, as a past leader dog grad, I, I had a, a glossary of terminology in my head. Um, and I had to do up a, a, uh, a leader dog to CNIB guide dog um, dictionary and um, send it out to the team so that they would be able to understand some of the terminology that these dogs as puppies grew up with, um, but didn't, didn't have in this new environment. And it, I mean, it didn't take long for us to figure it all out and get the dogs uh, on, on that, the same sort of process. But it was an interesting thing for us because that was a consideration that we hadn't even thought of as we were, you know, trying to get dogs in. Um, and same as when um, one of the things that we that we did in to, to, to in return in the response to and in thank in thankfulness uh, to leader dogs and also to GDF for helping us out, we um, we trained one of leader dogs' clients in Canada, so the dog was trained at leader dogs uh, everything the equipment everything else we just provided our guide dog mobility instructors um, who went out and worked with uh, leader dog clients so it's a leader dog grad and everything we just had the gdmi and i thought it was really fun because um, in both instances we did one with gdf one with leader dogs and in both instances the gdmis that worked uh, with the client came back and said it's fascinating because they learned new terminology that they didn't have, you know, we, you kind of get into a rut. So I think that working in an international space um, really helps, you know, and again, we, we work with Vision Australia with Seeing Eye over there and our puppy raising supervisor has just come back this weekend and she's already told us that she's going to be holding a, a workshop for all, of, uh, for all of us to talk to about some of the things that she learned over there. So the sharing of information is great. Um, but 
even when you're using the same language, there's still some translation that, that needs to be had. But uh, it's all worked out, David. Don't worry. Um, your client is doing well and the dogs are doing fine. I Thank you. Yes. Uh, a great collaboration, Diane. Thank you. And I, and I had heard the, the busy versus part-time story. So um, yeah. it's the devil's in the detail, as they say. Yes. When you get dogs from Australia, are they upside down? Diane. We all wow, sorry, really? sorry, I didn't I didn't hear you I didn't hear what you said, Lucas. When you get help. dogs from Australia, are they upside down? <laughs> no, but they spin in the opposite direction when they need to pee. They spin the other way when they're gonna Yeah. <laughs> That's good to hear. Uh <laughs> now I'll know when I see an Australian dog. Um, yeah, the, the, it's, it's interesting. The command in Japan, at least in some schools in Japan, there are a couple things that are different. One is that at least one school there trains all of their dogs on both sides. So it can guide on the left or guide on the right. And what they, they do, I think, is if they cross a street and turn, let's say, right, and the traffic is on the right, they put the dog on the left side and vice versa. So uh, th that's just one interesting variant. And we already talked a little bit about how they teach their dogs to relieve on command inside on, in, in uh, relieving uh, bags. The other thing I'll mention is that, and I don't know if this is true in China as well, but I, there, there are a couple things that I know about this. One is that in, Jap in Japan, the commands are that are at least in some schools that are given to the dogs are in English because Japanese is a much more tonal language. So that, for example, the command to relieve is one, two. And that's the dogs learn that, that that's the trigger word for, for that behavior. Another command that I've seen illustrated in Tokyo, <clears throat> there are a lot there, the traffic is completely crazy. And to cross many busy, busy roads, they have pedestrian overpasses. And so command, the do dogs learn the command bridge, as in, and so that when, they, when they're approaching uh, one of those overpasses, they could go along the sidewalk or they could target the overpass and dogs are trained to respond to the command bridge, which is interesting. Uh, I've also seen some fascinating video of uh, done by a fellow named William Chen, who worked for Leader Dog for a while and then started a guide dog program, the first guide dog program in Taiwan. Uh, and uh, he, he sent video of one of the, you know, it, their cars are, there are a lot of cars in Taiwan, but there are also an awful lot of scooters. And most people in a city environment would drive a scooter rather than a, a rather than a, a car. And so the dogs, for example, if someone drives up to you and gives you, offers you a ride or you're going somewhere with someone on their scooter, then you as the, the blind passenger would hop on the back, but the dog would sit on the flat floor of the scooter in between the driver's legs. So that's a whole different skill, uh, but that's what they do. Their dogs are very, very used to that. So there's a lot of differences culturally. That is fascinating. It's interesting stuff. It really it just points out the flexibility of these remarkable animals. Yes, think, I don't what yeah. figure if we are we're people first, which means that we have, you know, come in all different shapes and sizes and we do a variety of different things. Well then, you know what? <laughs>
Um, we were in vast numbers of different situ situations. And so that flexibility is very interesting. Um, the last question, what goes into, how do you decide where you're going to establish a new um, school? When it comes to establishing a guide dog school, um, again, Lucas, you, you probably a better place to, to answer some of this with your development committee. Um, I can speak from my experience of really working more so with clients from Latin America. Um, at Leader Dog, we work with clients in Mexico, Guatemala, Venezuela, um, because there really is very little um, in terms of guide dog service or services in general in, in Latin America. So um, Leader Dog, oh gosh, I couldn't honestly tell you how long ago, but it's it's been a significant number of decades um, has been training individuals from Latin America because there isn't the service provision um, in those countries um, because not so much that there, there couldn't be the, the skill set or the talent to do that, but it usually comes down to funding uh, the philanthropic because, again, culture around philanthropy um, or whether even down to government giving um, for funding these types of projects um, just isn't there. So um, something I would love to see across the world in areas where there's still a demand for orientation, mobility or guide dog services or whatever service it may be, um, but it really comes down to funding um, that that's kind of gets in the way of individuals and some very talented individuals wanting to start programs um, up in their own countries. So um, I think that's where those of us that have uh, guide dog schools that are fortunate to train apprentices or, or um, uh, work with instructors in terms of knowledge sharing can really help um, because that's one area that we're able to provide um, the skills in terms of how to do this work. Um, Diane? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, again, CNIB is, is Canadian, um, is a Canadian organization and just in the midst of growing. Um, but, you know, we, we look, um, we look at what's happening around the world. And, and one of the things, I mean, we're, we're trying to, and, and, and I should probably say this, we're in a, a, an a applicant status within the IGDF, we're, we're all the way through the process, except we haven't had the assessor come out and it's because of the, um, because of the uh, border closures. So we're, we're hoping that that's going to happen soon and we're going to get assessed and be a full-fledged um, accredited uh, program. And, you know, but I have to say um, thank you to all the guide dog programs that have worked with us, despite the fact that we're not yet accredited, that they've been amazing with us. Um, but I, I think that what's interesting is we've talked about it from looking at what's available around the world for um, access to, to qualified and certified GDMIs and so on and so forth. And, and um, you know, those, those trainers, they're worth their weight in gold, I'll tell you, because trying to get um, people trained, it's, you know, obviously it's a long process. So when you're trying to get certified guide dog mobility instructors training, you've got to look around the world at an international perspective. And it's really fascinating to me that when you look at um, where all of these folks are coming from, that really kind of gives you an idea of maybe where there needs to be more, um, more help um, in, in those areas. 
one of my other hats that I wear at CNIB is uh, I do, I'm vice president of international affairs. So I, I work with the World Blind Union. And when you have an opportunity to, to, to connect with so many individuals from a, from a um, grassroots um, consumer organization, um, you get to understand, you know, some, some areas they just don't even, they don't even talk to you, but there's not even a thought about a guide dog because independence and freedom in that particular country isn't even thought of, you know, they're worried about how do I eat today? Um, as opposed to how do I get on a bus and get to a job? You know, they're really, then again, there's a lot of, you know, the whole hierarchy of needs um, is different when you're living in, Burundi, Africa, as, as opposed to the United States. So, um, I, you know, I would say as we look at guide dog programs around the world and how can we help to establish more, I think one of the things that we as organizations, as guide dog programs can really do to help to establish other schools is to provide, to open up our own programs to doing apprentice training to help other countries to get their schools started. And the IDDF um, is is an absolute um, necessity to be connected with because they are the the expertise and the knowledge and um, and information that you can just tap from that source is amazing. So I, I although I can't determine because we just do it in Canada, I think that that there is opportunity for us to reach out to individuals around the world and say, hey, if you're looking to start a guide dog program, you know. Um, you know, come here, we'll help you, we'll train you, we'll do whatever you need. We're, our, our doors are open, our arms are open to help you out. I'll just throw into the mix that uh, David put his finger right on it. Boy, we are, we are so fortunate in the United States and Canada with the philosophy and the resources uh, behind uh, philanthropy, tax breaks, things like that, uh, that are given to people who support not-for-profit organizations. What a difference that makes, uh, as well as just plain having the resources. There are certainly successful schools in, in other parts of the world, uh, a lot of them. Uh, but you, we, I see the problem uh, largely in Latin America. There's the money. Money is a huge issue. And, uh, you know, they, there's some good trainers down there. Uh, but, but having a consistent flow of resources is difficult. One of the most successful schools uh, that I'm aware of that's starting in, in, in Latin America is a school in Brazil that is funded by uh, a dog food manufacturer. And they're committed to, not just to dog guides, but also to other types of social justice and social good uh, movements. And that school is on a very, very solid financial basis and has wonderful resources in terms of uh, kenneling and dormitory space and so on and so forth. But uh, that's relatively rare. And, and another school that I'm aware of in Latin America supports itself, which is interesting, by veterinary services. So they, uh, they, it's, it's a small school in terms of the number of, of, of uh, uh, graduates per year, but they have six veterinarians. Uh, and so, in effect, the veterinary, the veterinary services that they provide within the country uh, support the existence of a substantial guide dog program. So there's all kinds of answers to this, but boy, we are so fortunate in this country in terms of the infrastructure that we have and in terms of the financial infrastructure that exists 
to support the programs that we have. Where, that, where those two things don't exist, it's much more difficult. Thank you very, very much. Um, I really appreciate This has been a, an amazing um, panel. I think we have time for just one question. Bavia Shaw, you should be able to talk. But thank you so much for the presentation to everybody who has been on the panel. I missed the initial little bit, so apologies if part of this was already touched on. But I care about global development. I'm originally from India. So funding is, of course, one of the issues in scaling up different parts of the world in setting up guide dog schools. Could you perhaps describe other challenges that you have faced? Is perhaps the population density or the quality of physical infrastructure in developing countries an issue? Um, or anything else that I might have not thought about. Yeah. I should be more succinct and clear. Yeah. What are, other than the lack or scarcity of funding, mm -hmm. challenges in setting up guide dog schools in the developing world? Yeah. So besides money, what else um, contributes to uh, difficulties when it comes to setting up a guide dog school in the developing world? Um, well, th there are several. One is access to dogs. Uh, and again, that's something where the IGDF works hard on but, and tries to facilitate. But access to quality dogs that can do the work uh, is, is, is a huge problem. Um, and I think uh, you, you pointed out the issue with, with infrastructure uh, and the possibilities of, 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 of a, a blind person traveling independently. Uh, in within that culture, whether it's population density, although you know things get pretty complex in in, in our major cities, at least when we don't have COVID, um, from a pedestrian point of view. But I also know a man, uh, an old friend of mine named Mickey D'Amelio, who <coughs> went uh, to India and also to Vietnam, Jamaica, various other uh, other countries, and looked at teaching just straight old mobility, not guide dog mobility and tried to develop techniques to, to cope with those situations. For example, uh, he came to feel that, you know, where in the United States and Canada, uh, we, we, we cross intersections at corners. He recommended certainly in, in uh, I, I believe in India, maybe also Vietnam, that it was probably smarter to cross mid block because he only had two flows of direction. Um, and uh, there are all kinds of all kinds of issues like that that come up. So you're quite correct. Infrastructure, uh, population density, probably not so much, but resources on, and access to dogs that are that are suitable for the environment. Those things are really key. Training expertise as well, of course, but that can be that can be fixed. Yeah, I I, I agree completely with everything that uh, Lucas has said. I think. Gosh, just trying to think what I could add to that. Um, certainly, um, weather is a consideration. I, I think you were kind of sort of talking about that, Lucas, but um, especially extremely hot climates, um, the realities of working certain breeds within those, I think that's a consideration. Um, and I can also think of a few examples, even just finding a location to have a kennel Mm -hmm. With barking dogs, um, I can think of examples where that's been a challenge, just being able to get permission to build such a facility. So I think they're the only couple of things I think I could add at this point. We'll take another okay, one. So, okay, Kathy Lyons. Good afternoon, everyone. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Kathy. My name, as you indicated, is Kathy Lyons, 
And um, I just wanted to mention, because uh, Lucas mentioned Japan, uh, my mother, my um, rather, my sister's mother-in-law was Japanese. And I was over at the house one time and I needed to give my dog a drink. So they gave me a pan and I did so. And then she promptly threw it out after he had his drink. So, yeah, the Japanese culture is sometimes an issue. Can be. But, and yet guide dog programs in Japan are very successful. They do quite well. But, I mean, they've had to make significant adaptations to the culture for sure. Uh -huh. Thank you. Well, let me give the closing code, and then we will take the last question. So the closing code, uh, the CEU code, is 63954. Repeat, 63954. Six, Unfortunately, we will not be able to take any further questions. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, absolutely, thank you to GBY for um, co-sponsoring us, co-sponsoring with us. And I will turn it over to Andrea. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry to have to cut this short. It's so interesting. And I, um, this is my fourth year being intricately involved in planning the convention. And I thought I sort of knew what I was doing. Clearly, I did not. I should have made every one of our sessions a double session. And um, so going forward, whoever takes this job will will be able to have that fabulous piece of advice from me. Um, this is our last session for GDUI. Uh, there's a, a lot of wonderful things going on throughout um, tonight and tomorrow with ACB. But for GDUI, we've wrapped our 2021 convention at the end of uh, in the next few minutes. It's been wonderful. It's been exciting. It's been interesting. There's been so much diverse conversation, and yet the overarching theme to me feels like it's about independence and, and, and traveling, whether it's traveling um, with a guide dog just through your neighborhood, whether it's traveling in the future in an autonomous vehicle, whether it's traveling um, through the airports and, and using, you know, having those staff, the, the employees of airports and, air, and airlines better trained, whether it's looking at how our guide dogs start from puppy to active, you know, fully completed training. Um, we've sort of touched on all those areas and that's been really interesting and, and a sort of fun way to come at independence as a blind person, excuse me, a person who is blind. Um, and whether that's with a cane or with a guide dog or however you want to do it, it's all about getting out and doing what need, what you want to do, what you need to do, what you wish to do and, and having the, a world that will let that happen. I have a couple of more door prizes to announce and then we get to um, bring this one to a close. Thank you to my committee. Thank you to everyone out there who's here listening, paying attention. Thanks for everyone who supported our plush dog, guide dog drawing and certainly to the leadership in GDUI for you know being leaders and to ACB for doing just an outstanding job in making this whole convention happen and just amazing. The last winners we have, and these are going to, again, just like in the past session, um, going to be prizes that are either the, re, um, the waterless shampoo glove, mitten, excuse me, it's not a glove, it's a mitten, um, and or the prizes that are from both the UNAR labs and the Vimy labs that Dr. Judici talked about yesterday. 
And the winners are Richard Johnson, Colby Garrison, Bernadetta King. So thank you all for being here. Have a, it's been a great convention. Thank you for letting me be in a leadership role and making it happen. And everyone be safe and be fun and keep your, loose, your, leash, your leashes loose and your shoulders back. <laughs>